load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Blammo. Yeah, good Nice It's good you haven't forgotten that one for this week I didn't, I didn't forget it last week. I said Kablamington last week, which was... I had to prompt you. The I thought time we it was came. iconic. Yeah, Kablamington was pretty good. Guys, it's episode 77. 77. 77 of Weekly Weights. Today, we're going to talk about coaching and learning technique. And we're going to take, I think at first, a pretty conceptual um, look at it. And then we'll we'll also tie that into just like the practical, you know... I guess we'll do the whys and then we'll do a bit of the hows when we talk about optimizing technique but before we get on topic i want to start off topic <laughs> which is the, which is the best way to begin with something that just shits me um i've been going through instagram quite a bit recently and i follow a number of big name fitness accounts and i've realized none of these big name fitness accounts can ever post anything without somebody posting something that's at best tangentially related in response as though anyone gives a fuck so the instance that's coming to mind Menno Henselman just shared just shared um, one of his research reviews and it was saying something along the lines of like squats, bench and deadlift all induce similar levels of neuromuscular fatigue, right? And the idea is challenging the notion that deadlifts are especially fatiguing. That's a whole other discussion. And so there's all these people having an interesting discussion in the comments. And so I was like, oh, this is worth having a look at. And so I clicked the comments and the first comment is a guy saying, deadlifts are my favorite exercise. And I was like, fuck mate like did it have like 500 likes no it had like two but like see i like going i like going to the comments of like big pages and looking at the top comments and laughing well they're often just moronic yeah exactly but like if i posted if i was like oh you know just got married in fiji over the weekend and the first comment wasn't congratulations it was i love snorkeling yeah, how good's Fiji? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, mate, like, are you, can you fucking read? Like, why don't you write a Facebook status of I love snorkeling? Or if I could pick one exercise, it would be deadlifts, you know? Because, like, the, the big accounts have lots of people following them, which means there's a greater chance that there are morons following them. You reckon you could just pick up some followers? Maybe I'll start commenting on big accounts just, I'm a legend, or I'm a good coach, or something like no, that. No, I'm not saying that, like, there's any merit... Well, there's any way in getting followers from it. I'm saying, oh, you're just saying they have lots of followers, so there's more likely that someone's going to be a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, where God. like if you post something, you get whatever 2,500 followers or 3,000 followers or whatever. Yeah, go it's on, rapidly go diminishing. On, go on, how many do you have? 2,804. <laughs> <laughs> like, oscillating around 2,800 guys. If you posted something, the only one who would reply something stupid is like Brandon. Yeah, he's a fucking idiot. True. Shout out Brandon. Shout out Brandon. That's our colleague. Um, Where like Menno Helmsman probably has how many? For hundreds of Brandons. God, that is a that's a sad situation. Anyway, guys, every week I think I'm going to continue on my little crusade about things about fitness social media that I don't like. So last week we spoke about wolf and lion based self-aggrandizing lifting memes. This week we've spoken about fucking inane responses. Respond to the topic at hand or fucking keep it to yourself. Like a like will suffice. That's what I think. Agreed. A like will certainly suffice. All right, we're going to talk I, about. I've got some quick news. Okay. Yes. Um, Tony Rymouth became the first Australian or well, powerlifting Australian lifter to squat 400 kilos. Shit. There you which go. Which is awesome. Did you see it? No, I actually didn't. This was, was at Worlds, I presume. A, he smoked it. It was a smoke show. So congrats to Tony. 
big congrats to Tony. I don't Does know he, if he listen? listen? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. He's um, a great bloke. I was going to say, probably our biggest listener if he listens. You'd be close. Yeah. Yeah. Him and Shero. Him and Shero. All right. Shout out to Tony. Congratulations. That's bloody big. I'm going to get my subtotal up to to 400. That's going to take a lot of work on my bench press. Oh, actually, it's not unreasonable. You're like 390 or something. Yeah, I know. Yeah, true. I'll try and get my subtotal up to Tony's squat. That's the goal. And a few of my female lifters are trying to get their total up to Tony's squat, and that's a bit of work. So, very impressive stuff. All right, the first... I guess the first big question that we're going to talk about as far as technique goes is... And this seems kind of self-explanatory, but what is the purpose of technique in maximizing lifting performance? So, Alex, what do you got to say? You've written notes today, which is a glorious but rare occurrence. Yes, I have written notes. So, um, the purpose of technique is to essentially put ourselves in the best position, most efficient position, to use our muscles to lift as much weight as we can, essentially. So, if our technique is optimized... In theory, we're in the strongest, safest, most efficient position. We will lift the most weight. So I want to interrupt you there because I think you made some good points. But I just want everybody to learn something that I just learned, which is that font size isn't absolute. It's relative. Because I just, I've got my notes here. I actually typed them. And these are typed in size 12 font, but then I printed two pages per sheet. And it's just the same relative size on the page. So they don't just keep size 12 font absolutely. It's just relative to the size of the page, isn't it, Alex? Don't you think? How weird's that? As if you didn't know that. No, I didn't know. Okay, there you go, guys. Font sizes, they're relative. Nothing's real these days. Nothing's absolute, hey. And speaking of things that aren't real or absolute, good technique. Um, yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's impossible. Um, I think what Alex had to say is correct. So, you know, good technique is designed to put you in, in positions that are stronger or at least in theory and safer. And that one's even more at least in theory um, to maximize what you can lift. I think maximizing what you can lift is definitely the case with good technique. Um, part of the basis for that would be ideas of mechanical efficiency which don't always pan out so an example might be that when we bench press arching can reduce the range of motion and put the shoulder in a more mechanically advantageous position because at the sticking point of the lift the the shoulder flexion demands so the work that your pecs and front delts have to do can be reduced a little bit so that's that's certainly true to some degree you can be more mechanically efficient and similarly, you can be more muscularly, muscularly efficient, which is to say that you can align your muscles so that so that they can produce more force at the points that you need it. And again, arching in the bench press is probably a good example for that. Likewise, touching in the correct point in the bench press, things like that too. Um, reduced injury risk, I wrote down with a bit of a question mark because I'm I'm actually less certain than I used to be how much a given technique per se reduces injury risk, but certainly I think technical stability definitely does so it's probably a wide range of mostly safe techniques that people can do provided training load is well managed but if your technique is very very unstable particularly accompanied with relatively aggressive training loading i think that's a recipe for injury so certainly stability is important and i think a a good point there is consistency as well if you're like i guess stable and consistent uh, i guess closely linked yeah absolutely like when i say technical stability i mean consistency which is to say that like if you are somebody who deadlifts with a rounded back and you do all of your deadlifts with a rounded back and you build up over time to doing decent amounts of volume with deadlifting with a rounded back that's probably not enormously injurious at least as compared to somebody who every deadlift looks different 
some deadlifts look, you know, they have a relatively straight back, they look great, and then sometimes they just deadlift with a horribly rounded back and, you know, the spinal extension moments massively increase in the middle of a lift because they just fuck everything up. That is more likely injurious to me than any particular posture, but that's a little bit outside my area of expertise. But what you said about consistency, I think, is really important. Um, but the other thing about consistency or at least or at least distributing stress appropriately that's important is that it lets you handle more training load. So if your technique is good, almost always there's less wear and tear. When you train, the stimulus is targeted in the way that you want, so you can normally get through more work, and the work that you do gets you more return. So that's important. And tied to that is that if you're doing accessories or variations, technique's really important to make sure the stimulus is targeted well. So if you're doing a, I don't know, a seated row to work your mid-back and you don't actually retract your scapulae, then you're not really getting much mid-back work. So that makes a bit of a waste of time and you could think of a million other analogies for that. And then the final one, and this is super obvious as well, is just adhering to the rules. So in powerlifting, there are stipulations around what you can do in order to get white lights for your lifts. So you, you want to make sure that your technique actually lets you do it. And part of the reason technical consistency is important is because when you put yourself under max loads, you're going to, or ideally at least, replicate the technique that you've been practicing or at least the technique that you've strengthened. And so you want to make sure that that technique is going to get you white lights if you do it and can lift the weight. How do you think about that? Yeah, I don't have any, anything to add to that. It's so weird. You wrote notes. I was expecting you to come in here fucking fire and brimstone. This is Alex, you know. I'm going to just make lots of biblical analogies today. You are the burning bush at the top of the mountain telling everybody why technique's important. Blah, blah. Tuesday training tips. Blah, blah. Follow me on Instagram. Blah, blah. Ask all your friends to share it. And you had like a one word response to why is technique important. You're like, oh, lift good, bro. Mine was broad. And then you spoke for 10 minutes and said all the things that I was going to say. And spoke for 10 minutes and said nothing at all. <laughs> um, okay. So anyway, there's some reasons why technique is important. So if you think technique isn't important, then fuck you. Question two, what aspects of technique are there? So technique's a bit of a nebulous term. Um, you know, what actually goes into technique in your mind? Well, positions are probably the first thing that come to mind. So the actual positions of the joints and your body segments relative to each other and also the positions that you're in at every portion of the lift. So it's not just in your deadlift, say, your starting position. It's your starting position where the bar is one inch from your shin, two inches from your shin, three inches from your shin, etc. until you get to lockout. So all those positions are extremely important. And then how we sequence those positions is extremely important. So if you know you can start in a great deadlift position, but if you lose your back shape, for instance, or if your knees shoot back too fast, or if your knees shoot forward, or whatever the case is, that obviously matters. So being in the right positions and sequencing the position so that we're in the right position at every single part of the movement is that's what comes to mind for me. So as always, I'm going to add a considerable amount of redundancy in my answer by repeating what Alex said because I agree. Um, so I wrote about it sort of from a top-down approach. So the the first thing you think about in technique is just global execution. So get from A to B. Like when you do a squat, do you actually bend your knees and then stand up? So global execution. That global execution, like Alex said, is comprised of an interrelated series of joint movements. Um, and that's what Alex was talking about when he said that you have joint movements and your segments move... Um, and all those movements are obviously interrelated. So, um, yeah, okay, those movements are interrelated. We can get into technical breakdowns later. And then, again, like Alex said, they're sequencing. So, you know, you might, when you squat, standing up from the bottom position, your knees and hips have to extend. 
but they have to actually extend together or in a way that's complementary to maximize your lifting efficiency or or at least you want to see the same thing happening from rep to rep to see that technique's at least consistent and then the speed and magnitude of those joint movements can also matter a lot um i also wrote down things like tempo and consistency of movement um and also your ability for error correction so in powerlifting you might think that error correction is less important or necessary because the movements should be should be very stable and predictable like you're not having to react to things in your environment but people still do occasionally miss groove lifts and so your ability to then refine a correct position if possible is i guess some part of technique um and then there's other neural adaptations i'm not really sure if the if i would call these technique because they're they're less learnt they just happen because you lift weights but as you learn to lift and get better at it you get adaptations like antagonist inhibition so if you are extending the knee that's done by a quadricep you have knee flexors like the hamstrings who try and you know pull your shin back towards the back of your thigh and they learn to turn off to let your knee extensors work harder so that neural adaptation comes with lifting weights and another one that happens as you start lifting weights towards the top end of a muscle's maximum force producing capacity is that your nervous system gets better at sending signals rapidly and in the correct sequence to make that muscle fire powerfully that's called rate coding so those things happen as well when you learn to lift weights and in some part that ties into technique because it makes you a more efficient lifter and something you probably see alex do you like you probably notice this among novices when they start when they actually first start doing lifts that are somewhat challenging is they just become a bit jerky and clunky in their movements even if they're they're actually doing it competently and it doesn't look that hard it just looks like they're kind of shitty at lifting when it's heavy you know what i mean yeah it's like when you get someone on a bench for the first time and it's like wobble city like it's yeah. the bar when yeah. they're clearly strong enough to lift it yeah it's just yeah wobbles all over the place so i think some part of that is probably because you don't have that you don't have that rapid synchronous firing of motor units you don't have that antagonist inhibition and another part of that is also when you don't have a very strong sense of what good movement is you need more of a proprioceptive signal to know when you're moving. So when people are like wobbling on the bench press, like Alex said, part of that is because their joint sensors, like the sensors that you have in your you know, shoulder and wrist and elbow joint that says, this is where my joint is in space, they probably need slightly bigger perturbations to actually know what's going on than somebody who's got a really well-developed sense of position because to them, every stimulus is novel right now. Um, and then the final one is performance and arousal control. Um, and again, I'm not sure how much you would you would put this under technique per se but all very good lifters are really good at putting themselves in the correct space to do the lift and we spoke about this in our episode last week about how pre-lift rituals and things can be very important i do think that they are inextricably related to lifting technique so alex you for instance have a very characteristic squat setup you do your sort of rock forward and back on your toes you pop the bar out of the rack there's a tempo to your to your walkout you do all of those things even the way in which you grip the bar before you get under it is exactly the same every time and just like the you know pre kicking off a kicking off a tea ritual for rugby say those those pre-lift rituals help put you in the correct headspace and sort of they those rituals precede the actual effortful parts of technique don't you think yeah i think the biggest thing with that is that it puts you in the right position Mm. so like when you grip the bar in the same place every time it's making sure that your upper back is as tight as you can get it. Yeah. Um, it's making sure that you're, you know, squeezing your elbows together or whatever, whatever the case is. Those those things that you do beforehand are ensuring your technique is sort of there, right? Mm. So it's not that those things like necessarily 
play an immediate factor. It's more that they end up putting you in a position. Is that if that makes sense? I think that those that's definitely true. Like it obviously makes you more consistent to do the same thing every time. Like that's just a truism. Yeah, but um, if but you could take away like half of the things and still end up in the same place. Yeah, I think. I think he could, but this. I'm kind of spitballing, but this ties more deeply into an idea of motor learning, which is that automatic movements um, tend to be more efficient. Um, and there's there's a bunch of reasons for that. But one of the reasons that we automate automate movement in general is to preserve energy and allow us to do things without imposing too much conscious control because when we consciously control movement, it's very clunky. Um, so for a good example, when you balance on two feet, um, you know, you have you have little nerve pathways that operate around all the joints of your lower limb and stuff. They sense perturbations in your position, changes in the force in each muscle, and they make automatic corrections without having to send much of a signal or a signal to your brain at all to tell you, hey, you better do this to stand upright. When, but when you start thinking like, fuck, how am I going to balance on my feet? You suddenly have to send that signal twice as far. You have to consciously say, squeeze this, then squeeze that. And it all just happens slower. And so your balance feels less natural than when you just let it happen. Um, that that can be extended all the way through to very effortful activities. And it's one of the reasons why for experienced lifters who know what they're doing, getting in the zone is helpful for lifting because when they have to think too much about it, it slows them down and little corrections that they would make completely unconsciously, they start doing consciously and it's slow and it fucks with the like micro timing of their lifting, which is why for, I'm jumping the gun, but for advanced people, a lot of cueing, particularly on the platform, should be just focused around effort and encouragement, and then you do review after. Um, I suspect why those pre-lift rituals, again, once you have a well-ingrained technique, are so important is because it sort of sets this platform of automatic movement already. It gets you into a sequence that you're comfortable with and you know, but you do it before the part that's effortful. So, like, you know, there's no real excuse to fuck up the way in which you walk up to a bar when you deadlift, right? Like, there's there's no great force acting upon you that would make it impossible for you to just put your feet next to the bar. So you can, you can use that easy environment to start that automatic process that then enables you to perform better down the track. I think that again, when I say I'm spitballing, like I'm spitballing, but that's what I think. Yeah. I certainly agree with that. I guess what I was referring to is like, you could have lots of these little ticks that result in you doing a certain outcome. Yeah. Or you could have zero. Oh, absolutely. And it's that, it's just whatever the way that you approach the task is, is the way that you approach the task. Oh, totally. You don't, no, not everybody needs to have like a very elaborate pre-lift exactly, ritual. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's like those pre-lift rituals aren't responsible for you shifting away from A to B. No. They're responsible for you to put you in the right position to shift away from A to B. But if those didn't exist at all, it wouldn't necessarily stop you from performing the lift oh fully 100 percent um and on a sort of related but inverted note something that i notice again with novices is you know when you send a new lifter out to the bar and you say like let's try x new q and they just approach the bar completely differently because they're obviously trying to basically think their way through the lift and you can almost like preempt that this set's going to feel like it's going to just look different or weird or honky because instead of walking to the bar the way they normally do when they squat, they're fucking around. They take three times as long to get out of the rack. And you're like, okay, like I'm, I'm in for something interesting here. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like when you see, when you watch a lifter do their first comp and their first squat, they walk out and take three steps. 
and then their next squat, they walk out and take 11 steps. You're like, okay, this squat's going to be different to the first one. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that's all the aspects of technique and execution that I wrote down um, and why. But basically, it's this, it's this sort of nebulous, big phenomenon that's actually comprised of a whole bunch of little things. And when we think about coaching technique and appraising technique, we need to be mindful of, of all of them and how they're, they're related conceptually, or else we wouldn't just call the whole lot technique. So the next question, and this is sort of part of the crux of the episode, is how do we actually coach technique? Well, this depends, I guess initially on who we're coaching mm-hmm. that's probably the first thing if we have a complete beginner we're probably going to teach them positions get them to move through them very slowly so that we get that sequencing correct like i spoke about earlier um it could be as simple as a demonstration as you show them how to do it and if you're like me and you don't do it very well you probably don't want to do this um but yeah like it could be demonstration it could be like using slow patterns um, something that is really important and this is something that um, I've experienced a lot in coaching sport and in doing sport is like if I use basketball for an example if someone knows how to dribble a ball with their right hand but not with their left hand they're not going to just switch their left hand and just do it at the same speed you're going to do things slowly mm. or if, if someone can shoot from you know 5 feet from the basket but not 10 feet from the basket they're probably going to take a few chances if you rhythms are going to need practice at developing that new length of distance if someone doesn't know how to kick a footy like you're not just going to go all right off you go kick a footy you're mm. going to show them very slowly the steps that it takes to get to performing that bigger action yeah so the same thing can be done with lifting so like you can break the lift down into the different portions this is what happens to the knee this is what happens to the hip this is what happens to the shoulders blah blah blah, blah whatever and at first it's going to be really really slow and it's going to be really deliberate and controlled and then I guess from there you just let them go and then give them feedback on how it went, um, cue, cueing, etc. Well, I'm so glad to have my chance to answer this question because I've actually done it once before on my website. I wrote an article um, about, it's called The Coach's Toolbox, something like cueing and technique or some shit like that. But the start of it's The Coach's Toolbox. Didn't get as many reads as I expected, which is weird because it's only like 9,000 words and you know kind of fucking boring um, but luckily i'm going to give you the highlights on the podcast yeah you weren't going to get my click if you <laughs> yeah um if you i actually would suggest reading that article because my website metrics have taken a bit of a dive recently i haven't posted much on it for a while but but yeah you could go check that article out it says a whole lot of shit conceptually about it um the way in which we teach technique should definitely change across somebody's career so that's the first point on which I agree with Alex, the first of very few. Um, he always smirks when I say that, but you can't hear the laughter. Um, no, I pretty much agree entirely with Alex. So so I in the article, I broke down things into a few domains being cueing, feedback, and demonstration. Um, so with, um, I guess, with beginner lifters, typically people need more guidance. So the first concept is, just like Alex said, if you don't know how to do something at all, then you don't know how to do something at all. So you need to develop in your mind some type of a some type of an idea of what the correct movement looks like and feels like. And initially that's going to probably happen very slowly and clunkily. And one of the phenomena that you see or phenomena that you see um, across the learning process in motor, um, in motor learning in general 
is that the the number of the degrees of freedom that somebody exhibits during a movement increases. So classic example, sexist question, Alex. When girls throw a ball, often, how does it look? No There's, comment. No comment. Good man. Um, I know lots of girls who can throw a ball really well. You bigot. But when if you get somebody, you ask the fucking sexist <laughs> question, you dickhead. Um, if you get somebody who can't throw a ball well. So, like, when people say throwing like a girl, though, this is exactly what they're talking about when they then mimic it. Or if you get somebody to throw with, like, their non-dominant arm and they're not, you know, reasonably well-trained at throwing, or you just watch a toddler throw, what you often see is that they have, like, an elbow that's basically stiff, a wrist that's basically stiff, and they kind of, like, move this one long arm segment and kind of, like, it's almost like a really shitty bowling technique in cricket and they just, like, throw really inefficiently. It looks heinous and it's really gross, right? And the ball goes nowhere. You know what I'm talking about now, Alex? Yes. That doesn't relate to how girls throw at all. Yeah, that... No. The women thing didn't get me, but okay. the baby thing got me. Yeah, well, fucking babies. <laughs> we can't be sexist, but we can absolutely be ageist against babies. They're shit at everything. That's Except why they, they need squat, their parents. They can squat really well, though. Yeah, they squat like fucking champs. If they could fucking throw like they could squat they'd be unreal um so anyway you see that um though you see that really stiff motion only one joint's really moving at a time and then what tends to happen as people people learn is that suddenly the elbow starts to unlock so you get the elbow and the shoulder moving in sync and then the wrist starts to unlock and movement gets more whip-like and the more distal joints so the joints that are further from the midline start getting a bit more freedom and and like technique frees up generally the same thing is going to happen when you start when you start teaching somebody, say, to squat. They're going to struggle to move. Like if you tell someone to break at the knees and hips together, the first time, like they're not really capable of letting both happen together and just thinking about it. They're going to be like fucking feeling out one and their hips will move and then they'll go, oh, fuck, my knees have to go now too and they'll shift between them. Everything's going to happen slowly. Um, so, so like Alex said, introducing movements in a graded fashion is really important giving skill-focused cueing, so walking people through sequences, letting them do it slowly, changing the way in which they do a task so that they can perform it appropriately and so they get um, so they get really targeted and augmented feedback of what, what good execution and what bad execution feels like is really important. Um, and giving people both a sensation of what things will feel like internally, so saying like you'll feel this muscle and external external cueing so telling people you know like bring your chest to the wall as you stand up when you squat all of that's really important for beginners so they basically need a high level of guidance as time goes on though that guidance then needs to be pulled back because what you want people to do is actually develop their own um, their own internal systems by which to appraise their own movement because just like just like automaticity is less clunky um, than conscious control your own intrinsic feedback mechanisms are eventually more refined and precise and faster and better at correcting your movement than relying on external feedback so over time you want to withdraw you want to withdraw guidance you want to let people make mistakes learn from them and problem solve themselves so they can get better and more competent um, in a more self-directed fashion and then by the time people are advanced cueing should be sparing and it should be targeted mostly to effortful aspects of the lift feedback should be reduced in frequency but much more precise so where for a beginner you might just say you know hey that was a that was a good squat for a more advanced lifter you might say you know that squat was great your upper back looked tighter i could see you were drawing your elbows in when you were hitting the hole or something like that so you give very targeted very precise feedback 
and then they can then assimilate that with their own feelings of what the movement was like in the case of beginners you might need to give people both a descriptive appraisal of their movement so that was good and then some type of prescriptive element like that was good but we need your chest to rise more um, out of the hole and the way you're going to do it is thinking of pushing you back into the bar Whereas for an advanced lifter, you might just give the descriptive element and then let them sort out their own response to it. So you might say, that squat was pretty good, but your chest was tipping. And then they think of their own solution or or you guys can work together to do it because by their stage, that's what you should be seeing. Um, you also brought up demonstration. And in that article, I had a look at a little bit of literature about demonstration. In the case of beginners to a task, it seems to be that demonstration is no better than verbal feedback um, unless the important performance elements are highlighted. So so typically, if you're like teaching somebody to squat and say, Alex, you yourself give them a demonstration, if they're, whatever it is, if their hip isn't breaking correctly, giving them a demonstration saying, no, nah, just squat like this won't help. But if you say look at my hips and how when I start squatting, they fold back immediately. That is helpful. Um, if you're not able to do that and you're not willing to do that, then verbal um, verbal instruction is just as good. In the case of beginner lifters, also looking at imperfect models can be helpful too. So you don't have to always show people perfect squats. You can show them footage of themselves fucking things up or point out somebody else across the gym and say, see how when they do this, this happens. And that can actually be helpful for motor learning. Um and, but the examples you give have to be like relatable and generalizable. For more advanced people, then demonstration becomes less and less helpful and self-review is probably more helpful um, because the sort of specificity of their technique will have increased a lot. Specificity meaning like it's very specific to them, the person, and therefore other people's movement is going to be much less generalizable to theirs. And again, demonstration needs to be more precise in their case again than it does for a beginner. Does that make sense? Yeah, and when it goes back to demonstration, <clears throat> the thing you mentioned is like you can't just give someone a demonstration of like how to do something complex without for sorry for a beginner how to do something complex without breaking it down like you said. So if if you say oh just squat like this, but you don't highlight the particular element that it is like like you mentioned the hips moving, <clears throat> you might just do the demonstration of a hip hinge and say you need to hinge your hips like this or dem- teach them how to do that on its own, and then bring that. Uh, smaller part of it into the bigger picture yeah exactly um i think from a conceptual standpoint that probably covers how to coach technique again you could read my article on my website access is free willberkman.com forward slash blog if that ever changes you are having a laugh (laughs) as if i'm gonna charge for access to my shitty blog that no one reads eventually though (laughs) um yeah you could read that there but probably Probably more important is some of the like the more practical discussion well, that we're I, gonna have. I had one um, more point to add. Go um, is asking questions. Yes. So how asking questions changes along someone's career. Mm-hmm. Um, we're probably gonna ask someone who's newer to lifting probably less questions because they don't have the answers to them. They might have answers like how it feels, but they don't really understand like whether how it feels means that it was good or whether it was bad or whatever. Yeah. But as someone gets um, more experience and they understand like what it feels like to be for instance tight in their upper back and if you say oh how'd it feel oh I, I lost tightness in my upper back I felt a bit loose in my upper back then you can then use that feedback from them because they are more experienced and they understand that that part of the squat is important 
then you can use that to then give them feedback on it. Okay, next set, focus on getting upper back tight. And then when you go back to cueing them, it comes back to their feedback, not your feedback. Yeah, so that, that actually ties in very well with what the literature that I read for that article said, um, which is essentially that beginners, like you said, don't have a very firm concept of what good and bad is. So they do need slightly more prescriptive, um, you know, do this more or that was good, that was bad. Although it is still probably to their benefit to let them direct their own feedback to a degree because that promotes the learning and self-awareness that you want. So you might say like, what felt good about that? What felt bad about that? You know, what did you do well? What did you do badly? But you're still going to have to corroborate it because there's every chance they'll be wrong. And in my experience as well, if clients think they're getting a pop quiz, they just panic and say something sometimes and it's so funny for sure especially if they're like a complete beginner yeah they're not like like, they're not gonna know yeah they don't know what what the answer is yeah but like you know it's not they're not right or wrong i'm saying how do you feel like i can't tell you how you feel yeah of course um but you know it's still useful to ask those questions but like you said you can't give much weighting to it by the time people are advanced though as a coach you should be a sounding board for those things it's it's not very helpful for me to tell somebody exactly what i observed and how it felt for them it's very helpful for them to tell me this is how it felt, this is the solution I'm going to generate for it because at that stage you can't really step in and sort of impose your knowledge on them. They need to figure it out themselves a bit. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then the next big question, we'll do this one, then we'll have a break. Next big question was, how can I use of those tools that we spoke about in coaching, um, in coaching technique change over an athlete's career or in different contexts? I started answering, um, I started answering some of them, but what did you have to say here? Um very generally as someone gets more competent you let them guide the discussion more Mm -hmm. and that's something that we just spoke about then um so for someone who is um more experienced ask question first ask for solutions and then guide from the from their solutions or what they think their solutions would be yeah you know they're not going to be right all the time and that's when you need to step in as a coach and say oh okay well you think this but i actually think this you know like and then discuss from there like what you can do about it if you if you have a disagreement mm-hmm. um uh, someone someone newer sorry i can't read my own handwriting someone right. i can't read it either if it's anything mine or yours yours i can read mine perfectly yours is terrible i just remember what i'm writing down so that i don't yeah, have to right. read it again later go on um whereas on the flip side someone newer may need to be told exactly what to do at all times and you may not be able to give them the chance to even guide their own feedback so I'm actually curious, um, let's just depart from the question at hand and get on to that question. Um, you've acknowledged that at some stage people have to start taking a bit more of, like taking a bit more control in their own learning and their own feedback. But you've also said that with a beginner, like they just need to be told they don't know. What are the indications to you that somebody might be ready to start doing a bit more of their own self-assessment without your guidance? Well, like I said, you still ask these questions anyway to a beginner. Mm. and if they seem to get the answer right like based on what you have viewed yeah then that's kind of a step in the right direction yeah but i think just when someone has a consistency with the way they move and you know each rep is more similar yeah versus just you know a complete mess all the time and everything's different that's kind of when they sort of have a bit more autonomy with their technique and they might may understand it a little bit better yeah i think it's it's rare that somebody would by accident arrive at a consistent technique like when technique's completely inconsistent it says that they're just it's like they're trying 10 different strategies for how to sit down and stand up for a squat and they haven't decided this is a good one yet 
Whereas when somebody does 10 squats that are the same, even if they're imperfect, they've at least arrived at a solution that they're going to stick to for the time being and then you have to guide them to a better one, you know? Yeah, once they've found their kind of consistent base technique, that's when I would consider someone to be out of the beginner stage and into the more intermediate stage. Yeah. Um, technically, at least. Um, so, yeah, when once they've established that sort of baseline technique, then you can kind of start to let them guide themselves a little bit more but it's it's on a continuum it mm. it doesn't just happen out of nowhere yeah and that you don't let them go to almost full autonomy out of nowhere either it's on a continuum yeah so like yeah a good example of this is like um the three different lifts mm-hmm. like someone may be super confident with squatting yeah they may just understand it really well it feels good it's really natural and then they might get you know more rope to sort of guide their own feedback before their bench press or before their deadlift or whatever the case is yeah i would agree with everything you had to say i'm not going to add much to what i said before though i would say that if you want to read more about it you can read my article on my blog there's a helpful infographic it's got arrows on it that talk it says like beginner to advanced if you'd like to read a lot more (laughs) a lot (laughs) guys please um yeah that couple of things that I thought were actually really interesting, kind of just tangentially related to this, then we're having a break. On the Stronger by Science podcast, which I quite enjoy, um, a while back, um, what's his name? Greg Knuckles. He was on our podcast um, before he was anybody in the fitness industry. We helped bring him up. Um, he came on our podcast and he, he spoke on theirs though about, um, about a couple of a couple of cueing and coaching strategies that I thought were really interesting and actually conceptually tied in really well with what i wrote in this article that episode actually came out suspiciously close to when i put out my article which is making me think that greg might have read it in preparation for the show he was one of the six clicks he got maybe um and one of them was the method of magnitude um of i wrote method of magnitude of error i'm dumb method of magnification of error which is you can cue people when they're um when they're fucking up a lift in a certain way to fuck it up even worse and that sounds really dumb, but if you tell somebody, hey, you're getting on your toes a bit when you squat and they can't really feel it or tell, and you say, hey, next time you squat, I want you to like shove your knees really fucking far forward, like lean forward and try and drive your toes down as much as you can and don't worry about your heels at all. They'll do it. It'll feel terrible. And they'll be like, oh shit, I better avoid that end, like that pole, right? And then you, can, you could even cue them to go the complete other way as wrong as they possibly can say i want you to lift your toes in the air i want you to shove your butt back stay as upright as you can feel your heels only fall over backwards when you squat they'll do it it'll feel terrible and they'll go fuck well i better avoid that pole and then they'll start actually trying to occupy the middle ground better and so by getting people to really magnify getting people to really magnify a problem that they've made it gives them like a more concrete sense of what it actually feels like to be right and wrong and therefore what they're trying to avoid by correcting that error because if they don't have a sense of actually what they're trying to avoid by correcting it they're going to be less likely to do so and that ties in a little bit um with some of the theories of motor learning i discussed in my article tm wink um i thought that was a good idea and then another one that's kind of related that he spoke about in the same episode was um was over for correction so so this is for more competent lifters if you tell somebody who squats but you know doesn't get their chest rising out of the hole effectively but they're an otherwise competent squatter um you know like say you have a dude who squats 200 kilos or something so he's plainly not a beginner um his chest doesn't rise out of the hole and you say when you stand up i want you to literally throw the bar off your back like throw it onto the wall behind you they're not actually going to do it like they're not going to stand up so hard that they throw the bar off their back and fall over backwards or anything stupid like that 
because they know that that's just like an impossible way to squat. It's not tenable. But by overcuing, it directs like extra effort towards something that they they otherwise wouldn't achieve. And so it can be a really effective cueing strategy as well. Rather than saying, hey man, just get your chest rising a little bit more. Like tell them to really fucking try and do it hard. Because unless they really fucking try and do it hard, it's not going to happen properly. What do you think of that? Uh, the first point of uh, over... Of magnifying error. Magnifying error. I think that works with regards to teaching positions. Like if you have someone in the start of the bench press and you say, all right, protract your shoulders as much as you can and make your arms as long as you can possible. Yeah. And then pull them back. Like you might from there get a better understanding of how to retract the shoulders. Or if you put someone in the deadlift start position, you say, all right, like straighten your back as much as you can and then go as flex as you possibly can through your mid back Mm. and back to it. I think that's a good teaching tool. Yep. But as far as like during a movement, I'm not sold on that. Like... I've actually used because it of, for deadlifting. Because of like um, safety purposes. Like the example of squat you gave, if you put someone on on their toes, like they may literally fall over. Yeah, of course. But if you do it with an empty bar, they're not going to die if you're of standing course, right yeah. there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It'd be a great Jim Fails video. Can you imagine a lift performance center security cam footage of me with like 10 clients a week just stacking at squatting and I'm out here saying I'm the technique master coach. Um, no, well, I have used that exact that exact idea with deadlifts um, for a couple of people where I've said like, hey, I want you to get into your normal start position and then I want you to try and stand up, like get upright without straightening your legs at all for people who just don't extend their knees off the floor. And they're like, this feels terrible. It's really hard and all I can feel is my back working. And they'll be doing it with like 40 kilos, you know, and you go, okay, great. Now I want you to try and, you know, basically get your legs completely stiff without raising your chest at all. And they'll be like, this feels terrible. All I can do is feel my back. My hamstrings feel stretched, blah, 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 blah. So you can totally do it in the process of lifting. You're just not going to do it under like a max or anything. It just has to be like with an implement of enough weight that they can actually do something that feels like the lift. Okay, well then that, then that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, though. I'm not saying, hey bro, like I know you deadlift 270, load up 250 and like, let's do it as wrong as you like, can. Hang on, Greg Knuckles, you're trying to kill people out here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe. What was the second point? Second one was just overcuing. Yeah, like I entirely agree with this and I do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm... If I'm cueing someone in the squat, say I might say like push your feet through the floor. Like obviously you can't push your feet through the floor. Yeah. But it's a good way to get someone to like apply force down to use their legs. Yeah, totally. Or yeah, drive your drive your chest to the wall. Or yeah. Push, break the bar yeah. in half. Yeah, bend the bar. Yeah. I'm. It's actually a shame that you didn't disagree more with Greg because I reckon it'd do us a lot of good to have some internet beef with the Stronger by Science podcast. They They're always, doing pretty well. They always say that you what? can like pay them a subscription have you, have you heard that joke they make oh, about yeah, paying yeah. them a subscription or whatever yeah they are a good podcast guys if you listen to ours and you don't listen to them their viewership does need a bit of a boost so by all means feel free to check out the Stronger by Science podcast this isn't a paid advertisement although Greg Eric I know you both listen Is it's Eric Helms right yeah yeah Helms is the one on that one um they do look I know you guys both listen no one's, um, gonna, we've get, had no both. one's gonna get that joke at all <laughs> well look I, again Eric Helms Greg Knuckles, we've had you both on the show. We're glad to have contributed to your success with the Stronger by Science podcast. Get in touch. If you want us to shout you out every week, we'll do it for a small fee. It's easy. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with a bit more about technique. <laughs> We're not starting it like that. Kablamo. I've started recording already. Alex wanted to start this podcast off like jados starts his youtube videos i don't know if anybody remembers jados 
He was the um, he was the satirical pinger loving EDM fan from I think he was from Queensland, wasn't he? I um, think so. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think he was from I think he was from New South Wales because he always he? spoke about like going to Splendor and. I don't know. It was he was legendary. It was so funny. He did one recently actually where it was like Jados does the Melbourne cop, and it's so funny. Anyway, he basically just had guides about like how to get wasted and take drugs at festivals, and he's got a very <laughs> he's got a a signature opening phrase for all his videos we're not going to use it on weekly weights unless a few people message us and say we should definitely do it by next week and then will will do it (laughs) i absolutely will not you're the one who started this episode off with a sexist question already such a pussy yeah wow and you're saying that as a pejorative which is going to alienate a whole bunch of our female listeners or anybody. You're throwing me under the bus for you <laughs> asking a sexist question. It was not a sexist question. I was evoking an image that people could relate to. And I, I didn't understand it until you mentioned the baby. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's just virtue signal harder on the podcast. Fucking You're Mr. a Chaos. coward. All right. So the next, <laughs> que- <laughs> the next question is how, how does this imperative of improving lifting technique influence the way in which we program... Um, we program people and that's both in the like immediate term and in the medium to longer term. Alex, take it away when you're done texting. Can you repeat that please? No. I wasn't paying any attention. Shut up. Hang on, I need to get your um I need to get this outline back up on my on my phone. Are you serious? Okay. Because I got the questions on one page and then the answers on the other page, Will. Oh, for goodness sake. Alright, go on then. The uh, answers he says. You have so much certainty in your knowledge. Don't you ever consider that you might be wrong about some of the opinions that you hold, Alex? Okay, so we're talking about programming? Yeah. Um, okay, so... <laughs> you honestly weren't listening at all. I literally wasn't listening. I told you we'd started recording the podcast. We've been going for two minutes talking about Jados and girls. How good's Jados? He's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> okay, go on. Um, okay, so we'll talk about the training variables for, or training principles first. So start with frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can argue a higher or lower frequency approach based on uh, either beginner or an advanced lifter. I don't... Th- I think there are, like, merit for both arguments, if that makes sense. Like, you can argue that a more advanced lifter should lift lower frequency because they don't need the um, constant technique stimulus yep. to elicit the technique that, that you're after because they've already got it. Yeah. And by the same token, you could argue that um, a, a more advanced lifter requires more consistent doses to elicit, to accumulate enough volume to get a response. Yeah. Um, and then in the same way, you could argue that a newer lifter might need um, more general work, so less work goes into technique. Yep. But then you could also argue that um, newer lifters need to do the lifts more often because they need to ingrain the technique. So Look, I'm going to be honest, bro. Like, as a podcast listener, I don't listen to a podcast to have somebody say, I don't fucking know the answer and I'm not sure what's right. Can you just get to the nitty gritty and tell everyone exactly what to do? No. <laughs> I'm sick of you trying to fucking add nuance to these discussions. Just say something. Are you are you going on a silent strike? Yeah, I'm on, a stri- I'm on a strike. That's actually mad. I would love to do a solo podcast. Imagine just full... We actually did that in one of the early episodes when you were too sick and you lost your voice and it was just a solid me diatribe for like an hour. No, you 
played like highlights from the first 12 episodes or whatever yeah, it was. It was pretty sad. I had to spend a whole afternoon listening to our, our podcast and picking out interesting bits and then saying, oh, I thought this then, but I didn't say it. Good episode. Episode 7 or 10 or something. It was mm, early. Mm, I think it was like 12. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Um, early days. Okay. Yeah. So frequency... The, the my answer is that I actually don't know mm-hmm. because I think it depends on the actual individual mm-hmm. um, I think as someone gets better and they're lifting heavier weights it can be hard to have frequency high enough um, because each of those sessions beats them up so much that you may need to pull back to once a week or or twice a week mm-hmm. um, so it depends to more than just on their experience level what, what would you say I agree um, which sucks. Um, Can you just give them like an, an answer, bro? Like, I'm about to give you the, the answer. Podcast, so like, they want like a definitive. Okay, the correct answer is moderate frequency. And I'll tell you why. So, for beginner lifters, they can sustain they can sustain a decent amount of work relatively frequently. The recovery demands aren't that high. There's no reason why they can't do most of the movements two or three times a week. They're not going to be extremely high fit sessions most of the time anyway. For advanced lifters, I actually think, like, let's just note, by the way, that powerlifts, are, they're not incredibly complicated skills. You're not asking somebody to do, like, whatever it is, like a backflip pike with three twists off a three-meter diving board. Like, it's not that hard. Um, so I don't think people actually need an enormous amount of practice to, to nail it, Right. Although I do think it helps to have slightly high frequency. Um, but once people start getting more advanced, frequency almost has to increase or at least be sitting at two plus sessions per week for the lifts just to make it tenable for you to get through enough volume because like neuromuscular fatigue also just inhibits your ability to do quality work within a session. And for strength adaptations, you need to do a decent amount of hard, like hard but high quality heavy-ish lifting across a week to actually get stronger so for heavy like for more advanced people they're still going to need higher frequency i don't necessarily think it's too master technique i think it's literally just because that's a reality of what it takes for them to get better and that's also an argument which we discussed in the programming the series so i'll give us a shout out occasionally as well as my own articles that's also an argument for periodization in their case because if they can't necessarily sustain those higher frequencies year in year out or week in week out or whatever forever then maybe having periods where you pull emphasis away, do some more general work, and then go back into that stuff here and there is going to be helpful and just keep them ticking over without getting hurt or burning out. Anyway, I do think though, as like a general, as a general stance, like more practice is good practice when you're trying to learn something. I don't think, I don't think that that's at all controversial. Um, and because fatigue can inhibit performance and possibly learning, um, I've got a funny bit of literature about that distributing the work you do across your sessions might help so if you're a beginner trying to learn to squat do it more than once a week if you can do it twice a week and you're fine maybe do it three times a week do a little bit of work each session like if you're going to do 10 sessions across a week doing four sessions once and three sessions twice is probably better than doing five five twice and certainly better than doing 10 once um and the funny bit of literature i had to refer to was i saw a paper titled something like exercise induced muscle damage impairs motor learning and I was like, oh shit, like this must be to do with lifting or something because like that's the main way in an athletic context that we think about people getting muscle damage unless you're talking about like ultra marathoners. But it was actually, they just got a whole bunch of people who were trying to learn, I think it was to throw darts and they like just induced muscle damage in a bunch of them and saw if they learned worse and they did. 
So it was like, so it was literally were, just pure proof of concept. But is that because they were so sore to like control their body? I actually, I didn't read the paper properly in depth. I just read the abstract and was like, oh, that's not related, but it may well have been could you? But could you imagine like doing a bunch of bicep curls to failure and just being so sore that you can barely lift your arms over your head and they're like, all right, throw a hundred darts. Yeah, It'd absolutely. It'd be so sure. terrible. But I don't know that it's just that because in the case of muscle damage, because you actually get some structural changes to your muscle, it might well be that like some of your sensation of position and stuff is off. So it's not just you are fatigued, therefore you can't do things precisely. That's true. But it could also well be that your sensation of position and stuff is off as well. Because there's a whole bunch of other things in motor learning that impair performance in the short term, but actually promote learning. So an example is variable practice or random practice as opposed to blocked practice. So in the so blocked practice is where you do the same thing over and over and over again. So say you're going to do 30 shots for a hoop in basketball um, and you're going to do 10 of them from the free throw line, 10 from the corner of the key and 10 from the three-point line. Blocked practice would be you do 10, 10, 10, right, in each position. Variable practice would be like, you know, you roll a dice or whatever and depending on which number comes up, you do a shot from that position and you still accumulate 30 shots and part of the reason that variable practice apparently helps is because it forces you to actually process the information more times right because you have to think oh i'm in this new position how do i shoot from here instead of just going at it um, but in the short term like people who do blocked versus variable practice trials the people in the variable practice skill always do it worse right so their performance in training is way worse but then when they give them a rest and retest them they do better than the people who did the blocked practice and when they try and transfer those skills which is not relevant for powerlifting i guess but you know when they then say okay great now we're going to shoot from a novel position with the basketball they also do better because they've actually learned the skill more deeply and more adaptively so so i don't necessarily think that just being sore and therefore not able to execute the movements well would necessarily impair learning unless it also impaired like the sensation that you need to learn does that make sense yeah and that was extremely irrelevant tangent cool man right, people let's... listen to our <laughs> podcast not just because they want concrete information and answers bro some people want to hear us talk about things tease out our thoughts and and say why we're not quite sure about stuff you know sure <laughs> all right all right um, um intensity yeah so have you noticed by the way that i did fiv i did yeah there you go Even that was for you. Be VIF. is it yeah oh sorry Go on, intensity then. Um, my belief is that the more confident someone gets, the um, greater they'll be able to lift at higher intensity and the more frequently they'll be able to lift at a higher intensity, basically because they're more efficient in the movement. So they're leaking less, they're leaking less power, they're not wasting energy. Um, but this comes with the caveat that if you are more competent, you're generally going to be stronger so the weights you're going to be lifting are going to be heavier, which means you're inducing more fatigue per rep. So then it probably doesn't mean you can lift as high intensity all the time. So it's a sort of like the more competent you get, the more you can lift heavy, but also the stronger you get, the less you can lift heavy. So it's kind of, they kind of cancel each other out. What about from a from an actual learning standpoint? Do you think like how heavy or light weights are matters for learning? Um, I think it, I think... Um, when you're more advanced, you can use higher intensities as technique work mm-hmm. because it's going to be more likely to be good reps. Yep. Whereas when you're um, when you're newer, as weight ramps up, 
the likelihood that you're going to achieve a good rep goes down. So you should probably do your practice with mostly good reps, which is probably going to mean slightly lighter loads. I agree. I kind of agree in concept with what you're saying, but not entirely. Um, so like from a like just global perspective, intensity matters for the sake of specificity. So, you know, when we peak, one of the reasons we need to bring fatigue down and stuff is give us some technical practice with heavier loads. Um, quality, like you need to actually be exposed to heavy loads and lift them well to peak. Um, and in the case of, you know, squatting is a really good example. Balancing with 200 kilos on your back is different to balancing with 20 kilos on your back, obviously, um, because the bar itself and the way in which it contributes to the center of mass is different. So your relative segment movements are going to be a little bit different to ensure that that center of mass stays over the middle of your foot. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that that squatting with, and it was squatting with heavier loads helped people learn better, but it's, it's really weak. So what they basically did was got a whole bunch of people who hadn't squatted before, showed them a model of someone squatting supposedly with a powerlifting style. That's what they wrote in the paper, which is funny. Um, and then they got them to do one rep with, I think it was like, I think it was like a quarter of their body weight or something on the bar and then got them to assemble a stick figure in the way in which they think a correct squat looked. And then they also just like did a video analysis of the lift and rated how good they were on a bunch of indices. And then one group just did the same weight again and they measured improvement in both their concept of what the lift should look like and how it actually looked. And the other group increased the load and the group that increased the load did better and what they what they suggested was that was that having more load also gave people better kinesthetic sense of where they're going so i don't think that you can do things with completely trivial loads and and learn technique but considering that study only tapped out at like half of someone's body weight on the bar i don't necessarily think that relationship would continue the whole way across like it's not like it's not like as in you can't squat a broomstick and learn how to squat. Yeah, that has very little relevance to powerlifting when we're talking about you know eighty kilo people squatting two fifty. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like I guess when you, I guess you'll you'll know this in your coaching experience. Will when you have someone squat the empty bar, like often there's not enough weight for them to sort of like feel the positions and even sometimes get the depth and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, it looks different. Yeah, so in that instance like there is a threshold minimum for like minimum load you need to do something efficiently mm. and that might be like 30% 1RM 40% 1RM or something but I'm, I'm talking like the difference between 60 and 90% 1RM I'm like completely ignoring sub 60 stuff yeah I think once you get into the range of intensities that you could actually reasonably expect to improve strength in somebody who's lifted weights yeah probably 65 60 to 65% yeah problem yeah maybe that maybe a tiny bit heavier but like let's say 60 65 percent once you're in that range the difference is probably marginal although there might still be benefit particularly for the sake of peaking of exposing people to heavier weights in fact for the sake of peaking i'd say definitely for general technical learning provided that it's heavy enough to be meaningful it's probably fine and what you said about novices i think is actually correct as well in the case of novices they can still definitely learn with weights that are sub-productive for strength training. So novices might be able to learn with 50 to 65%, whereas more advanced people might not actually be able to meaningfully improve their technique with 50 to 65% unless you put a lot of constraints on the movement. Yeah, that's, but for the competition that's lift, maybe say, 70%. Yeah. Um, 
you were going to talk about constraints on the movement because I think that's actually really important. Yeah, so for someone for someone who is more advanced um, and you want to ensure that they have their, maybe their secondary squat session is focused on uh, developing its certain technique, certain, mm. certain technique fault that they have, um, you need to put a cap on how much fatigue you're getting in that session. Yep. And one of the ways to do that is reduce the load on the bar and... Obviously, like we just said, if we reduce the load on the bar and we just do the competition movement, um, it's not going to be heavy enough to elicit any response yep. because it's just too easy. And it's not challenging any of the positions that they're struggling in. So it might be the case where, you know, if there's someone who falls apart when they get in the hole, they might do like a three-second pause in the hole, which might shave off 30 kilos off the max, which might shave 30 kilos off the working sets, which is going to shave a lot of fatigue off that particular session. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas someone who's relatively new, they can just do the competition lift a second time, loaded 15 to 20% lighter, and still get a productive um, technique hit from that. Yep. Um, completely agree. And that actually ties in conceptually with, with a couple of big motor learning concepts. One is the idea of constraints-led learning, um, which is to say the weight, like movement patterns or motor behavior they arise as a result of what's going on in the environment around you. So in the case of in the case of squatting, you know, you you get like you basically sit down, you have to stand up somehow, and depending on, you know, what you're standing on, where your feet are set, what like where the implement is sat, so whether it's on your back or you're holding it a goblet style or whatever it happens to be, um, you're you basically come to some solution that helps you actually stand up and that's what motor behavior is. And by manipulating the constraints, you can teach people or you can expose people to, um, to different stresses that cause them to find different solutions to the movement. So, you know, in the case of a goblet squat or a front squat, if your chest tips forward too much, you're going to drop the weight. It feels really bad. By putting the weight forward of them a little bit, the only way to stay balanced is to have them displace the hips back and things like that. So one of the reasons that, say, a goblet squat is a really good teaching tool for a lot of people is because it helps them maintain a neutral spine, it helps them have that displacement back at the hip, and it helps them stay balanced with their chest up while doing those things in a way that when you put the bar on their back is not always immediately apparent. And that analogy can be extended all the way through other forms of technique work. So just like Alex said, make somebody pause in the hole, suddenly they've got to approach the movement a little bit differently, they get exposed to a little bit of different information or feedback from you know how it feels, and so they adjust their motor pattern as a result. And when we're teaching technique changing the way in which people have to execute the movement is one of the most powerful tools that you have to actually make them do it a different way and feel a different solution to the motor problem because just like we said when we were talking about people who were just learning to squat the technique that somebody has like started to settle on if it's starting to look consistent that's because that's the best answer to the question of like how do i stand up that they've come to at the time right and so you've got to show them different answers or at least or at least show them parts of that different answer so that they can improve their current technique, basically. So it's so yeah, you expose them to different information. And that's the second that's the second concept, which is information movement coupling. Um, that's just a wanky way of saying that when you do a movement, you are sensitive to to novel information in the modal landscape. That's actually still a wanky way of saying it. But if you think of, say, driving a car. If you drive, you know, uh, like you, Alex, you drive a V-Dub Golf, right? Put you in my car, which is a Ferrari F50. Um, (laughs) 
So because I'm a fucking kick-ass personal trainer with a Ferrari. Um, but yeah, I put you in my Ferrari F50, right? You don't have to relearn how to drive a car. But you notice like, wow, this car's low slung. It's really fast. Leather's red in it. Sick. You know, steering wheel sits a bit higher relative to my normal car. Like I'm sat in more hip flexion. My legs are straight. Like you notice little different things. You still know how to drive a car. You notice that like your view out the mirror is a bit different, but you don't have to relearn the entire skill, right? Well, likewise, when you say to somebody, you're going to squat just like you normally squat, but you're going to go really, really slow on the descent or you're going to pause in the hole. It's the novelty that attracts their direction. And then because the rest of the task is relatively similar, doesn't require as much conscious input. They're not sensitive to information in the rest of the task but they can then take those new lessons from there and assimilate it into the task more easily. And the final related point to that is that when you do choose variations, particularly for the sake of learning technique, if, the, if there's a lot of dissimilarity, so if a lot of things change between the variation you've chosen and the competition lift, it's going to be harder to identify those things that are new or novel in the way in which they have to to have to perform that technique and then assimilate it into the main competition lift it's going to be harder because there's more new information so it's hard to say what's the point of difference whereas like alex's example if you choose something that's highly specific like a pause squat then it's easy to pick that one or two things that you have to do differently or that feel different and take it into the main lift because the rest is the same and so that across the phases or across the phases of a training plan again this is something that alex has said countless times in the podcast is like you want to move you want to move from maybe less specific variations to more specific variations both because it helps with that assimilation well actually almost entirely because it helps with that assimilation process but it also means you reserve those variations that have the most immediate transfer to when you need transfer most immediately does that make sense absolutely you've kind of just answered the variations question then yeah basically which was in a couple of questions time so we're going to talk about volume now 100 percent. you go so um as someone is a lower level lifter less competent they're going to require less volume to improve and that that is going to be less volume to improve their technique because they've done less training they don't need as much to sort of i mean i guess their their um direction for learning is a lot steeper it's going to happen a lot quicker yeah so they need less less total number of sets per week to improve to improve technique as you get better you're going to require more volume um, per week. But like we said, we're going to have to start to undulate it a little bit throughout the week. So um, I guess it's kind of similar to the way intensity works. Is like you are more competent and you are able to do more. But because you are able to do more, you're able to do more load, which means you're going to be fatiguing yourself more. And the same thing applies to volume. You're going to be doing more volume at heavier loads, so it's going to be fatiguing more. Mm. Therefore, you need to sort of break it up a little bit more. Yeah, I think... And that might be breaking it up. Um, like, each session might look a little bit different, like sort of a DUP-style approach, or it might be like the variation is different, so therefore the reps indicate that. Yeah. Um, or it might just be that split up over two, three, four sessions. Yeah, I think like purely from a learning conceptual standpoint, volume is basically just like how many chances you're going to get to practice a skill, or at least even if you don't think about it as practice, you know, how many exposures do you have? So, you know, do something, you have the chance to either do it right or do it wrong and learn something. How many times are you going to do that? Obviously, the more more rolls of the dice you have, the more chances you're going to have to come up with some type of a good movement solution or at least learn something. But like Alex said, you can only do so much quality work. 
and the way in which you distribute it is going to be really important for you to actually do said quality work, learn the lessons from it, and have enough have your work distributed such that you do actually have chances for um, for reflection and actual technical improvement rather than just mindlessly getting through it. So conceptually, more volume is probably good for learning. In reality, you can't just heap volume on people for the sake of learning because it has to be appreciably difficult to help and it still has to tie in with the overall plan of how you're going to get this person generally stronger. Um, the final one I had written was fatigue management. I don't know if you had more concepts than that. Did you write that one down? Uh, no, but I can talk about it real quick. Go. Um, this kind of ties into volume and intensity Yep. in that as volume and intensity increase, we need to find a way to manage them so that we can continue to increase them over weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're just pushing and pushing and we're not pulling back at any point in the week or any point in the month or any point in the training cycle, we're going to run into problems. Yep. Um, so generally as someone gets better, they have to do more work at a higher intensity to continue to facilitate progress. I think from a bodybuilding perspective as well, if we're just pushing and pushing and maybe occasionally we're pulling and pulling, but we're not doing legs, no good. What do you think? It's fair. Push, pull, legs. It's fair. That's now the, just the agreed upon split, by the way. I remember back in like 2011, bodybuilding.com forums, what split should I use for muscle growth? It was... Monday chest, Tuesday back, Wednesday legs, Thursday shoulders, Friday arms. Yeah, but then you'd have when, the odd Saturday absolute... Arms again. You'd have the absolute <laughs> renegade who'd be like upper lower, upper lower, shoulder and arm accessories or something like that. And people would be like, what the hell? And then somebody would come in and say, push, pull legs. And people would be like, whoa. And then somebody would be like, Lane Norton's fucking PHUP or whatever it is. Fat, fat program? Fat. Fa- oh, yeah. I thought you said FAP and I was P-H-A-T. like, you surely didn't call P-H-A-T, it PHAT, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Power hypertrophy, A for... Arms. Uh, T for they traps. They said you were done training. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I agree with what you had to say. I, think the, best, I think the best bro split is upper, lower, off. Yeah. Push, pull, legs. Oh, 100%. But in fact, yes, I agree. But I'm going to tell... <sighs> This is a patented Burke method that I I used to use and it kicked ass. Squats only and back, right? Sounds weird. Bench and push accessories. So squat, back and biceps. Bench, push accessories. Deadlift and leg accessories. Off, upper, lower. That was huge stuff. Five day split gets you a chance to have some like powerlifting feeling work during your upper body bodybuilding stuff at the start, and then just full on bro out for Thursday, Friday, or whatever, or Friday, Saturday. Huge guys, try that one. Get back to me in like two months' time when you're as jacked as Ronnie Coleman. Um, I agree with everything you had to say about fatigue management. Do and, we want to? Um, I'm guessing you skip calves in that program, well. <laughs> absolutely I, I skipped calves and chest unfortunately I just <laughs> I turned it into a four day program um, alright how do we diagnose what was, oh, I, what was I saying I you were just remember. talking about fatigue management and I got pretty bored I'm going to be honest nice you know you said basically you said basically you need to actually make sure your work's distributed such that you can do it with quality you said that you can't always be pushing and pushing without pulling and pulling training legs is important um, and and that basically, yeah, that high levels of fatigue are going to impair your ability to do the quality work that you need to do to learn and improve your technique. And you can't have really, really hard work all the time when the focus is on quality and you can't have 
your technique works so fatiguing that it impairs your ability to perform in the sessions where performance is important. I believe I just summed up what you said very well because I was listening, unlike when I talk and you just fucking text. So let's talk about diagnosing... That's really rude, Will. (laughs) Let's talk about diagnosing errors of... Um, yeah, errors or technique breakdown. What's Alex? What's the process? Powerlifting. Process powerlifting. <laughs> also a sponsor of the show. <laughs> Go on. Um, see, for me, it's entirely visual, mm-hmm. and the things that I can see um, that break down in a in a lift, I, and I refer them back to the way that I teach the lift in the first place. Yeah, will will tell me and. How I need to go about fixing it, essentially. So, like, I have the certain things that I teach. Mm-hmm. You know, like when teachers squat, you have like, you know, you might teach like foot pressure, bracing, upper back tightness, and then you might teach some stuff about the descent, and then some stuff about the ascent. Yep, sure. Like that might just be the way that I'm just guessing the way that you teach it, roughly. You would then look at the squat, mm-hmm. and having had those five things that I just said, if something goes wrong you're going to refer back to one of those five things and it's probably going to be one of those five things that was going wrong. Probably. And then you can go back to your system and then, you know, re-coach or reappraise or cue something um, the same way that you taught it. Uh, something I actually quite admire about you is that you've, because you have this, like, you have this well-rounded concept of, like, this is what I want to see from my lifters when they squat, bench press and deadlift. It allows you to then make inferences about what you're going to change or correct about them to see them develop in a way that it's like conforms with your system with me it's just chaos i see what's in front of me i react immediately and instinctively i don't necessarily relate it to anything to do with the lifts or the foundational concepts sometimes it doesn't relate to anything and most of the time it's like fucking stop right now (laughs) (laughs) um no i i actually tend to do things much the same way though in a less well articulated way i'd have to say um i wrote down here I wrote down here a like a three or four consideration approach to technical errors. So the first thing is like you see a technical breakdown, exactly like Alex said. Like it occurs visually. I don't feel you fuck up a squat when you do one in front of me because you're doing it. So I see something though, you know. And given my biomechanical understanding of lifting, like which muscles do what joint actions, how certain, you know, how certain positions are gonna load certain joints or muscles. I can make some type of a reasonable guess as to why that issue in the movement might have arisen. And so in the case of a squat, say you see the knees shoot back, the hips fall away in deflection, and then somebody successfully stands up using their hips almost always, like or like hip extension really effectively, sorry, you might be like, okay, well, that person's knees are shooting back because their quads are weak or at least something is causing them to shift weight from the legs to the hips, right? So maybe not even quads are weak. Let's just say something is causing them to shift weight from from the knee extensors to the hip extensors. And then I also like to corroborate that against other knowledge that I have of that lifter's performance. So if that person happens to be very competent in hip extension-based activities and kind of weak in leg ones, I might start being like, oh, yeah, this is very possibly a quad a quad weakness issue. If they happen to actually have relatively strong quads, I might be like, okay, there might be like some just pure execution issue underpinning this. And then I'd start looking as well at things like foot pressure and stuff. Though all that stuff is bi-directionally related, right? Like if you see somebody losing forefoot pressure when they're squatting and falling back into hip extension, they might be losing forefoot pressure because they don't know to drive their big toe down. So, you know, we can cue that. But they might also be doing that because they just want to load their hips because they're stronger. 
But like, you know, I start looking for those things and trying to corroborate what I'm seeing with what I know of their performance and what I presume is going to be the cause of those errors just from a biomechanical perspective. Um, the next question was, does cueing or correction resolve it? So particularly with newer lifters, sometimes people just fuck things up because they don't know what to do. So like I said, you might cue, drive your big toe down, keep your chest rising as you come out of the hole. And it's like, voila, the knees stay forward. There's no problem anymore. With more advanced people, that might work until it gets sufficiently heavy. And then they still move towards that tendency because their hips just happen to be stronger, whatever. But you start getting some more information based off of that. So now I've got a slightly more firm diagnosis. So say we have an advanced person who can fix that error, but they're not able to fix it at the heavier weights. I'm starting to think, okay, this person's quads are probably a little bit lagging. And then um, the next question, which I've started answering again, was are the errors intensity or fatigue dependent? So like, is this the type of thing that only happens when it's heavy or at the end of a set? That might tell me it's more muscular. Um, You know, yeah. Or are they present at all relevant loads? If they're present at all relevant loads, they've got like a gross weakness or they just don't know how to squat. Um, if it's only under fatigue and things, then it's you know some type of a weakness that's sufficient up until that threshold, like I've just said. And then on top of that, I just consider things like basic mis-execution. Like everybody just does the odd shit rep, um, you know, and also like global training structure stuff. So if somebody's done a really, really hard quad day and then the next day for some reason they have to squat and they're not using their quads effectively might just be that those squats on that day are a little bit too hard because their quads are fatigued or something like that. But I consider those things as well. But the first step is, what am I seeing? How does that relate to what I know of their performance? Second step is, can I resolve it immediately with cueing and correction? Yes, no. Then the next question is, when do those errors actually start occurring? Alex? Yeah, I think, yeah, the way that I do things comes back to like my system and how um, I like to have a reason behind everything that I teach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I teach you to, to squat a certain way, it's because I believe that's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And then if you make a mistake within that, then I'm going to go back to my system and try to decipher, you know, where in my system can I improve the outcome of your lift? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it, I guess it's pretty similar to the way that you do it. Yeah. Um, what's next? The next question, this is where this podcast just gets philosophical. Um, how much of a technical ideal do you think coaches should have? Um, is an athlete's perfect technique something that you think just arises from their experimentation and their unique strengths and weaknesses as a person? Or should we be pushing people towards a, a technical ideal that we have? Um, and then I'll ask the, the final question after that. So basically, first thing is, how much of a technical ideal should you have? Like how concrete should your idea of a good squat be? And secondly, is is technique like an emergent phenomenon? Is it something that just happens because people people learn to lift by lifting and they're going to just figure out how to squat eventually their own way or should we be imposing our ideas on them? I think that each coach should have an idea in their head of what all the lifts should look like. How firm should that idea be? I think the things that should be firm are the things that are global for everyone. Right. And those things include like stuff like bracing. Yep. Everyone should be able to brace there's no one on the planet you know unless you have some sort of disorder that should stop you from bracing like there's no one on the planet who shouldn't be able to perform a brace correctly so stuff like that the big the big rocks of teaching Mm -hmm. um those are the kind of things that everyone should include and everyone should have and then there are the there are the things that make people different which are the things that you know might make someone's technique in someone's eyes 
imperfect and that could just be like the length of your leg if you have a long femur you're going to be more bent over when you squat but that's totally okay if all the other things are in place in the first place so i guess we have like our biomechanical differences the way that we're built is going to effectively determine how it looks when we squat but that shouldn't like be like we shouldn't say like everyone should squat bent over because if we then have someone with short legs they can't does that make sense i that's more or less what i had to say as well like i i am more and more backing away from the idea that there's like a concrete technical perfect that everyone should have because i don't think that's true um but like alex said i do think that there are those big rock basic concepts that you want to see in every lift so bracings like low-hanging fruit you need to be able to create some semblance of stability through your torso to lift effectively um, and I think when somebody has a lifting issue or weakness that's plainly related to some deviation in technique from what you would consider normal, then it's warranted to try and correct that. But again, like Alex said, people are built differently, people move differently. And so particularly once you get somebody who's a relatively experienced lifter and they've had some time under the bar and have developed like a competent, safe technique they're not always going to look the same and you've got to be able to accommodate some wiggle room in the way in which people execute lifts in your concept. And like as a good example of the two of us here, like I think if my squat looked more like your squat in a lot of ways, it would probably be closer to what like the ideal might be. Like it's a bit more upright. You stand straight up. My hips tend to rise a little bit early sometimes. But like if I squatted the way you squatted, I probably wouldn't squat as much as I do. And likewise, if your deadlift looks more like mine, it might be closer to what people would call the technical perfect. But if you deadlifted the way I deadlifted, you'd deadlift less than you do, right? And you should also definitely bench the way that I bench. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's just a given. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you know what I mean? Like as in... Yeah, of course. Like, like both, are, both are fine techniques that happen to work. And the big rocks between... Like, again, in the case of our squat, there's big rocks that are entirely shared between them. There's just points of difference as well doesn't necessarily mean that one is completely untenable obviously because we've both gotten to relatively similar levels of proficiency with the squat and it's the same global movement pattern with just some subtle differences about how we went about it and they're based off of our strengths and weaknesses as people right and i think more importantly they're based off how we're built i think that's the biggest difference in if we use our squat as an example like my hips are slightly narrower than yours so yeah. my stance is slightly narrower than yours. Yeah. My legs are slightly shorter than yours. So yeah. I'm going to be a little bit more upright in the hole. My torso is a bit longer than yours yeah. relative to my legs. So Mention again, how I'm, big my glutes are. I'm going <laughs> to. I think it. my glutes actually might be bigger than yours. You're just lordotic. That's un- that's the thing incorrect. that triggers Alex the most incorrect. in the world. Everyone, please message Alex that he's lordotic. <laughs> off, I block you. <laughs> um, so like Will's legs are going to Will's legs are slightly longer than mine. Therefore, he's bent over more than me. His um, feet are wider than me because his hips are wider than mine and those are the things that those are probably the two biggest things that make our squats different it's like you end up more bent over I'm slightly more upright you got to favour my larger glutes and, <laughs> and no quads <laughs> yeah well, um, you know win some lose some <laughs> um, okay the second question was um, was is an athlete's perfect technique so we've just, we've now acknowledged like perfect technique is an illusion or like it's something that arises on an individual basis. Is perfect technique then something that comes from you discovering how to lift 
or is it something where you, the coach, looks at somebody and says, this is how you should lift and tells them and they basically just have to accept that knowledge and go and do it? I don't know, man. That's that's kind of a tough one. Like, I think there are perfect aspects of a lift, but mm-hmm. the lift as a whole is only perfect for that individual. Oh, that's what I'm saying though. But like for that individual. So let's take somebody who's got like a very unconventional technique in a lift, but is very good at it. Um, Lane Norton. I wasn't going to pick Lane Norton, but like he's a good example. Like his squat's pretty chat looking, you would agree. But he's obviously extremely strong. That's the way in which he's decided he's most comfortable and strong squatting. And other than his back hurting whenever he does a hard prep, like he <laughs> he's doing pretty well. That's why I wasn't going to pick him because he seems to get real beaten up. But I also think he just trains crazy hard. But like he has an unconventional squatting technique, like jokes aside, right? Um, but I like that's still an emergent phenomenon. Like that's he probably didn't squat exactly like that the first time he ever squatted. He's probably lifted weights for twenty years. I'm just guessing, right? Which means he's had twenty years of squatting and trying to get stronger and probably experimenting a little bit with technique to have come come across that as being like his strongest and best way of lifting. And I think as a coach, particularly because I coach a bunch of people who are like built very differently. Um, like I, I tend to think, you know, I kind of give people the tools to feel what good and bad feels like. I spot obvious weaknesses and things in them and try and address them by giving them, you know, secondary exercises and variations and, all that shit to strengthen those muscles and cueing them towards what look like appropriate postures and stuff in the lift. But ultimately they're the one who has to sort of like assemble a movement pattern and do it right. And eventually when they start to settle on a more and more and more concrete technique, that gets stronger and stronger and stronger over time. That's something that they've discovered that feels most comfortable and is strong and is most replicable for them. And although that's going to sit within this framework of what is like a feasible, possible squat, just like we were talking about with us two, that's going to sit somewhere within that framework. But that's still that's still the solution that like they've generated given all of the tools I've given them. Because, you know, all the exercises I prescribe and stuff, I think of it as like learning tools for the client. That's the solution they've generated. So to me, it is, it's something that they discover and then over time they refine it and refine it and refine it and, you know, in some ways reinforce it and in other ways change it. Like in the case of, again, think of, um, you know, your and my deadlifts and squats. Um, Over the past couple of years, I've thought more about having forefoot pressure when I squat. You know, I let my hips sit back, but I actively let myself lean forward a little bit more on the way down. And when I do that correctly, like let my knees go forward as my chest goes forward, which sounds weird to a lot of people. But when I think that, I squat in a slightly better way. And that's something I've discovered for myself. And, you know, likewise, you've changed the way in which you drop into your deadlift to get you off the ground more effectively. Those are things that you've come across as a lifter. It's not, they're not necessarily things that were imposed upon you by a coach. Your coach might have said, hey, play around with the way in which you drop in. But that didn't become your technique until you owned it and said, this is the way that feels strong and is effective for me. And remember when you missed that 285 deadlift really high in, um, was that Singapore? Yep. Yeah. Um, Thanks for bringing it up. No worries. But you, but you changed something about your technique and you were like, wow, I've never, I've never found that same level of strength in my deadlift again. So you went back to, you went back to aspects of that technique. That's a self-driven, that's a self-driven strategy. So like the, again, and you discovered that by trying other strategies and saying, this just doesn't hold up for me. Well, when I go to deadlift heavy, I've got to use a different solution again. So again, I think, I think more, I think it's more true that, athletes discover perfect technique over their career 
and that coaches guide that discovery than it is that coaches teach athletes does that make sense yeah i think what you're trying to say to, to summarize what you're trying to say is that like there's a million ways within the framework that we teach or having the big rocks in place there's a still heaps of flexibility there for different styles yeah and that isn't just determined by how you're built no it could be like how fast you move or you know i don't know whatever how you drop into something or whatever the case is there are there's heaps of flexibility so long as those big rocks are in place it doesn't really matter the rest of it so long as it feels comfortable for you you can do a lot of volume in that way it doesn't hurt you know those those kind of things yeah yeah basically that um anyway that's my answer yeah if you're not like foregoing any of the really really important stuff then i think it's pretty much fine whatever you do yeah okay final question is when do we as coaches choose to change technique or just let things be that might not conform to our like ideals you know um i think we've both kind of said we're quite flexible in in what constitutes okay technique provided those big rocks are ticked off but you know when yeah when do you look at a lifter and say they're probably never going to change that about the way that they lift um, but we can do X and Y to help them as a lifter as opposed to saying, let's change that. It's a cap on their performance. Again, I think it comes back to like having that system and having those those big things that you teach in place. If it's outside of those, then it's probably okay. If there's something that we notice that's inside that framework that we teach, like like we can use the bracing example, if we can see... So, sorry, you mean outside as in unrelated to those domains, not outside as in outside of the bounds of acceptability. Uh, like as in you say if it's if it pertains to one of those concepts that we say this is critical that I see yeah, in my lifter we then, need to change it correct yeah yes go on um, so yeah that's pretty much that's pretty much what I was going to say if if it's one of these things that we think is completely imperative and is an absolute absolute no brainer it has to be in there and it's not in there <laughs> like let's say it's upper back tightness in squat like mm-hmm. if, if they're just loose as anything and you know that's something that we're going to want to address we're going to want to fix it Mm. but if it's outside of that then i guess like why do we need to fix it yeah um i basically agree and i think one of the big lessons for me as a coach again over the past couple of years few years has been how like how broad my concepts of what good and bad have to be so the example of upper back tightness is a really good one that's critical no one's going to squat well if their upper back is loose and I think it is biomechanically most efficient, like as a second example, I think it's biomechanically most efficient that when people stand up, their hips don't shoot way back behind them. But for some people with heavier loads, their hips are going to start shooting up a little bit. And you can do lots of training to mitigate it, but until you expose them to those heavier loads, you're not going to see if it's transferred. And if when you give them those heavier loads back, hips start rising up a little bit, doesn't cause them pain, they still squat proficiently and stuff. It's probably not the worst thing in the world. It's an indication of something to work on later, but it doesn't mean you have to cease squatting and not let them squat unless their hips don't rise. Because for some people, that's just never going to happen, you know? Um, so I think being being able to be graded in your judgments of things like that is important too. It can also be just one of those things that you gradually chip away at. Exactly. It's not something that we're going to like, you know, that's a good example for you, Will. Like your hips do shoot back and the bar will sometimes shoot forward in front of your foot, mm. like when it's maximal. Yeah. And like, I'm never going to pull you back to 70 kilos and say, no, you have to keep the bar centered over your foot. You can't let your hip shoot back. Like that's going to do absolutely nothing for you. Yeah. There has to be some, 
there has to be some level of work that's like gradually improving you so that the next time you get to 250 you just shift slightly less yeah exactly particularly if that is the cap on your performance and that's that that's actually related to why i'm saying being graded in your appraisals is important if the cap in your performance isn't really that your hips shift back you know like it's that something else happens say let's talk about upper back tightness let's say you have a loose upper back and your hips shift back because your hips are strong if you were to address the upper back tightness you could actually get a little bit more mileage out of your hips shipping shifting back because your upper back wouldn't collapse as early right and so you still want to address the hip shifting back issue because you don't want to strain the upper back more but if you've got something that's like plainly big rock important you're fucking it up really badly and you can address it in the upper back tightness and it's going to let you move into the positions that you currently find stronger without that long graded chip away work so it'll yield you immediate kilos you should probably be addressing that first does that make sense absolutely all right let's take another break we're going to be back for underrated overrated and then that'll be it for the week Welcome back to episode 77 of Weekly Weights. We're going to do overrated, underrated, properly rated. Yeah. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. All right. Overrated, underrated, properly rated, deadlift bars. I'm actually... Okay, thank God you said that one. I was like about to shit the bed because I've completely blanked on my own one. (laughs) And I was going to ask you novelty bars and then decided not to. But deadlift bars... um, you always ask good ones because they're nuanced so i think they're overrated but if you compete with a deadlift bar and you use one for deadlift training most of the time completely properly rated exactly appropriate use of a deadlift bar if you are anybody else then i they're overrated and the reason i think that if you compete on a stiff bar so like powerlifting perspective compete on a stiff bar deadlift bar training doesn't have much transfer to a stiff bar it feels nice it's fun for your confidence and like even when i was deadlifting on the you know fitness first bendy bars it's fun for my confidence feeling like you'd rip weights off off the floor but it can be a bit of a rude shock when you're actually pulling something stiff so not that helpful if you're deadlifting for let's call it general strength and hypertrophy purposes it's probably negligible but if it helps you get off the floor a little bit easier then you you know you're lifting more weight but possibly not doing a whole lot more meaningful work um it helps you grip the bar better so i guess the counter argument to that might be that like because they're thinner um the counter argument to that might be that it helps you do some more productive deadlift work but it would be a pretty decent waste of money when i think of all the other things you could spend that money on to buy a deadlift bar for that purpose and most people who use it who aren't competing in a federation that uses specialty bars are probably just doing it to pad their ego a little bit so not a huge fan one more question yeah overrated underrated properly rated how much you get out of a deadlift bar uh probably overrated um oh actually depends but probably overrated um like myself personally very little bit doesn't get the bar that far off the floor for me to be honest it puts in a position that actually feels harder for me because of the way i deadlift um the grip part definitely helps and it feels a bit uncomfortable i think if you're like wide stance sumo really upright torso then like crazy how much you could get out of a deadlift bar but for the most part overrated people it's yeah i reckon people probably think they're gonna get more than they will what do you think about both those i agree the more you lift the more you're gonna get out of it 
because the more it's going to flex and the yeah, yeah. less work you have to do. So if you do lift a lot, like if you're Yuri Belkin, you probably get 50 kilos out of a deadlift bar. If you're uh, Wisbitsky, you probably get 50 kilos out of a deadlift bar. But if you're if you deadlift 200, you might get five. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's nutty to think about. Because what did Wisbitsky or whatever deadlift it? Did he do 470 for two on a deadlift bar? Was that... He... Oh, well, I don't know exactly what it was. I might, it was I might check nutty. Out. It was like five times body weight. Oh, so, he didn't lock that out. That was a single, but he didn't lock it out. Oh, whatever. As far as I'm concerned, that's like still one of the nuttiest things I've ever seen. Nuttiest feats of strength TM weekly weights segment that we invented. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was crazy. Okay, Alex. Underrated, overrated, or properly rated? Lockjaw collars. properly rated i guess i don't really <laughs> you're, know you're really confused aren't you i don't really know who has a, a a concrete opinion on this like whoever says lock is a shit never said they're shit i think they're fine they're, they're properly rated fine. they're five dollars they they do their thing they're underrated i think they're amazing here's why <clears throat> you know those collars where they have like they look like a gripper and you have to squeeze the little handles to loosen it. Oh, uh, the Boris collars. <laughs> Boris collars. <laughs> Our mate Boris from Lyft uses them all the time. He <laughs> only uses them. He's only so uses funny. Them. Is he, that all they have in Russia? I don't know. So Boris is like bordering on OCD about which platforms and stuff he'll use for training and which benches he'll use and even which barbell he'll use because he prefers the knurling on one. They suck. Those things are terrible. And even though they have no chance of actually touching the floor, I don't like rolling a bar when I'm deadlifting and I've got them on it because it just feels weird and I don't like it when they point in different directions. So so you're the one with the OCD. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so they're terrible, right? Lockjaw collars fix all that and they do a really great job of holding the place together. That's number one reason why they're sick. But, but they've got the little clips on the end and when you like lock them in and they have the little click mm-hmm. when that click comes off yeah they suck and they're flimsy and they're shit yes okay. and that happens frequently and whenever i have to search the gym for, for collars i have to make sure they've got that little end pointy end bit which means they click sure okay i'll give you that but like just presume but that they're functional pro- properly rated that's like saying you know oh like fucking broken cars are shit because they can't go far in your broken car like that's stupid but like they do break they break Within six months, one and two of them break. Second reason why they're sick, and this is better than deadlift bars. I'll tell you why. You can put more plates on the bar with a lockjaw collar. So squatting 220 using lockjaws, use four red plates. Using comp collars, reds, blue, black, collar. Still 220, but it's less badass because it's less red plates. And the reason that makes them, the reason that's sick, other than because you can lift more weights, is because it's better than a deadlift bar because you actually lift the weight that you're intending to lift so it doesn't make you do less work so you're not stroking your ego but you just look sick of doing it so you get the benefit of actually doing the work you intend to do and you look like a bad dog what do you reckon why not just get five kilos stronger and put the comp collars on <laughs> come on it's only five kilos yeah sure but no i reckon lockjaw collars sick heavily underrated will happily take a lockjaw sponsorship i think maybe because there is no prevalent opinion on them on the internet that they are overrated. Well, I want to be the because first. Because they are, they are extremely useful mm-hmm. and rarely let you down. That's Lockjaw TM. 
And if you go on Iron Edge and go to buy some lockjaw collars, you can type in WW20 and get 20% off from Weekly Weights. That's the episode for the week. I'm Will. I'm Alex. And next week, we will talk to you. Program comparison, maybe? we're doing a program comparison. Alex is going to write two programs. We'll chat to you next week. Have a good one.